I have so much to say about Exodus. Of course I do. But I can't really muster the courage. I want to describe in incredible detail my analysis of the Israeli project, the diaspora of Palestine, the history of Jews in Persia, the girls of the IDF, the lost tribes of Israel, the Sephardic flight from Spain, Golda Meir, the Balfour Declaration. I want to describe King Abdullah of Jordan and the films of Anne Bancroft. I want to talk about drip irrigation and the Uzi submachine gun, but I'm certain that if I do, I'll attract some portion of the ire of the entire body of our listeners, and I'm just not feeling up to the task of reading your 100 emails explaining to me why I'm a fascist. And by the way, that's not how the chain of command works. Like anyone interested in military and cultural history, the 72-year-old history of the nation of Israel is irresistible to me, and I've studied it voraciously, and I wish I lived in a world different from this one where I could fix all the problems by unwinding time at my leisure and coaxing, midwifing the whole experience so that everyone involved, then and now, got exactly what they wanted, plus a little extra at the expense of the other guy, and now lives happily somewhere better than where they lived before. That's my fantasy, but honestly, I'm just as ready to dive in and try to help aid and abet a solution to a current situation that honestly cannot be fixed at any price. Did you know that King Abdullah granted all Palestinians Jordanian citizenship and offered to administer the Jewish state as a province within his own kingdom? Uh, But there I go. I don't want to get into it. Do you, the listener, have a position on Israel? Probably. You probably can get pretty riled up about it, can't you? But do I want to hear it? No, of course I don't. I have my own very strong feelings about it, and if I wanted to stand around the student dining facility arguing with you about it over a card table that you set up with a cardboard sign that said Free Palestine, then I would have done that back when I had the chance. And I did do it, in fact, and I learned nothing except to avoid people who carried a certain kind of Swiss Army surplus gas mask bag as a purse. I wanted to argue with you then because I still believed in ideas and in reason. (laughs) Ha <laughs> ha! What an ignoramus I was! You didn't care what I thought about it. You wanted to tell me what you thought about it. And I struggled to not think you were an idiot, and I failed! Meanwhile, wars and wars and endless wars. That's neither here nor there. Do people care about each other? Of course they do. Is the majority of the world racist and anti-Semitic? I frankly don't think so. I think that people are wired to feel like resources are scarce, even when they're not, which is why so many of us order extra meat for a dollar, even when the regular-sized portion of chicken fried steak has plenty of meat, and anyway, meat is third on the list of reasons you even order chicken fried steak after the breading and the gravy. So people get especially torqued when resources actually are scarce, and there is no extra meat for a dollar or any price. And then the great schism becomes most evident. And I mean by that the divide between people who believe that to help other people, and by that I don't mean a lonely traveler who ran out of gas on the highway, but I mean help fellow humans have a better lot in life. Well, 
Some people think that's a mitzvah versus other people who feel in their hearts that helping other people comes at a cost of squandering the precious little that they have to survive themselves. I mean, that's a reasonable position. And often the people who most generously aid a guest or fellow traveler are the least likely to believe that a rising tide of justice lifts all boats. So it can get confusing quickly when everyone imagines that they are very generous to other people and why aren't most other people the same way. The fact is, though, that very few people have any interest in fairness until they feel that they themselves are being treated unfairly. Well, what does this have to do with Exodus? I'm not talking about you right now, okay? I'm sure that you, the listener, are very generous to travelers and to your fellow humans. I'm not suggesting that any particular position as regards the nation of Israel is ungenerous or mean. I'm just free associating because I really, really desperately want to talk to you about Israel. And frankly, this is my chance. I have the microphone plugged right into your ears and I could just delete any email I got with the header, you're so wrong about Israel. But just like getting an Israeli stamp in my passport and then having to endure endure the stink eye from some border guard in Yemen. I just don't have the strength. Look, I had plans to go to Yemen, and then this fucking endless war spilled over, and now look at it. It's funny, you'd think I'd want to visit Jerusalem. You'd think that. But frankly, Jerusalem gives me a headache. I don't believe any of it. What a load of bull. Human beings are ridiculous. Jerusalem, of all places. If you're going to fly to heaven on the back of a burak which is a horse with a human face of all the godforsaken things, wouldn't you beg God to send you to a place with nice beaches or summer winds or peach trees at least? Figs? Olives? Get out of here with that bougie crap. I want to visit Tel Aviv. It seems like a place where your hotel room would have a sliding glass door and you could drink fresh mixed fruit juice with mint and wear a shirt with epaulets. And the person who invited you there would have a linen shift over her bathing suit and her hair piled on top of her head in a messy way. No one ever flew to heaven on a horse with a face from Tel Aviv. I might even consent to debating about Israel with the young intellectual crowd in the hotel bar who came to hear my talk at the event sponsored by the embassy. And while they generally agreed with my theses, they wanted to add a few clarifications about how the command structure works. Each person on board this ship is a soldier. The only weapon we have to fight with is our willingness to die. Today on Friendly Fire, Exodus. Welcome to Friendly Fire, the war movie podcast whose hosts, depending on how you feel on this episode, you may count among the names of the dead at Yom Kippur. I'm Ben Harrison. <laughs> that sounds scary. I'm Adam Franica. <laughs> and I'm John Roderick. Yeah. Fraught topics today. That's what Friendly Fire does, though. Yeah. We don't shy away. No. We get into it. I mean, you, you could argue that, well, a lot of movies we've watched in the course of this show, particularly ones that are like, is this a war movie? They're the spawn of 
this movie in a couple of different ways. But, you know, politically, hmm. this is depicting a depicting the run up to a conflict that has created. Uh, well, uh, a constellation of global fires that we, we watch movies about all the time. Right. I think that structurally this movie is so interesting because it sort of positions itself in between conflicts in a way. Right. Like there's World War II has ended at the beginning and the wars that Israel fought with its neighbors have not totally begun yet at the end. The very last moment of this film is the first day of the civil war in Palestine that leads to the 1948 war. So what what makes this a war movie is that it's wars on both sides, right? A foot in each war. Both sides. That's our that's our happy place. <laughs> hey, let's do it. Let's stay there. Both sides. Both sides. The film really draws a straight line between like end of World War II and boats at Palestine. But what the film really made me think about a lot were like what other ideas were on the table? What a crazy moment in world history for the war to have ended you have a Jewish population that has been traumatized the way that it has been. What do you do? What doors are open or shut? Like, what can you make Germany do or not do Yeah. at the end? Playing out the, the possibilities was, I think, a more interesting exercise than watching the film, personally. Ouch. <laughs> Wow. <laughs> Fucking nuclear hot take there. It makes me wonder how many other films set in this time period may have gone in different directions as far as what could have happened, what might have happened. I read a little bit about the actual ship that is depicted in this movie. This is kind of a uh, pretty heavily fictionalized version of this ship. But this ship like sailed to France and the French authorities were like, well, you like the Jews can get off the boat if they want to get off the boat. Just classic French passive aggression. Like, <laughs> Well, no, it was, it, it was that like they were willing to have them, but it was pretty clear that the English were just kind of trying to dump the problem of, you know, where will these people go and what will they do to survive onto the French? And I think that that's kind of, that's a big part of what they were fighting against. It's such a mindfuck that like these people are running away from Nazi concentration camps and then just put in other camps by other big nation states. Right. The real story of the Exodus is a terrible one. Not anything like it's depicted here. When the Exodus arrived in Haifa, they didn't disembark. They they forced them to turn away, and then it became this like ship that nobody wanted. And most of the refugees on the Exodus ended up in a internment camp in Germany, where many of them spent several years. So to call this the Exodus and to portray the first act of the film as this uh, this like it was a um, publicity event that galvanized a lot of support around the world, but it did not have the happy ending or the like patriotic ending. It was the worst. And if you'd made an actual movie about what actually happened to the Exodus, it would be a super downer. But you know, this is based on, this is based on a novel by Leon Uris. That was a very popular novel and a, and a great novel. I mean, I've read it and he's a great author. I remember reading it, I don't know, 35 years ago and thinking it was amazing, but he's like a James Mishner, you know, he's writing historical fiction basically. And the novel itself is like 
much broader and much, you know, it tells the whole story of Palestine, or at least, you know, Palestine as it confronts Zionism. Um, what they chose to put in this movie and what they chose to leave out is super weird. Yeah, I mean, like, if you haven't watched it yet, uh, we cannot stress this enough. It is a three and a half hour movie. So the things that are left out are almost mind boggling to <laughs> contemplate. Well, that's what's crazy. I mean, they spend there's there are scenes in this movie where where they burn six minutes watching a guy open a can of soup. But then <laughs> there are giant parts of the story that they just like condense like at the, the this scene. As soon as the British allow them to leave Cyprus we like jump cut to everybody in Haifa getting off the boat, like high five in each other or whatever. And then jump cut to basically a new movie. Is that where high five came from? Haifa? <laughs> like, I don't know much about the mandate, but I do know the Jews were promised a homeland in Palestine. We have this great movie set up where we're spending all this wonderful time with Ralph Richardson. And we're like, Hey, this is great. Anytime you get to spend with Ralph Richardson, you're having a good time. And then we never see him again. You know, we, yeah. we get 40 minutes with him and it's like, we get set up thinking we're in one place. And then we, it really feels like three films. It feels like as much of a TV film as we've ever gotten with the long fade to black, almost on the hour. Right. That was a weird, it was a wonderful fade to black at hour two. Uh, <laughs> that's when you knew you only had 90 minutes left. But, you know, Ralph Richardson and Peter Lawford are top build. They both go away, you know, I don't know what, minute 40. And then we're like, who's who are the new who are our new friends? Especially when I feel like you're trained as a as a movie viewer to be introduced to characters that go through changes. Like you see the the major Caldwell character and you're like, ugh. This guy, this guy is troubling. I don't like him. Is he going to die or change? And the answer is neither. He's just going to go away. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I, I teased a little bit earlier. I didn't feel like there was enough of that for me here. Well, that's the thing. If you're going to fictionalize a story and also try and tell the true story, um, why wouldn't you fictionalize it so that, so that we had Ralph Richardson also be the British uh, administer of administrator of Palestine or mm -hmm. have uh, Peter Lawford continue in some capacity because we have British bad guys, but they're faceless. They're, they're nameless, faceless bad guys. There is some casual anti-Semitism in those characters. What's really preventing the war refugees from having any like hope for the future is this kind of like bureaucratic bullshit that is like made a little bit easier by their casual anti-Semitism, but is not like completely linked to that. And, you know, in the time we're watching this, a, an interesting thing to think about, like the way people's like racialized worldviews can kind of undergird the like injustices that they help support. If you went up to Major Caldwell and said, like, hey, like, how do you feel about Jews? And he'd be like, don't care for them. Do you think that we should, like, let these people rot in camps? And he'd be like, well, that's above my pay grade. So I'm just going to, like, keep doing what I'm ordered to do, you know. But that's what would have been so fascinating because I agree it's really interesting to watch and it contextualizes the beginning of the movie. But but there are no Arabs 
in that first part. And we're watching the anti-Semitism and the, and you know, like low grade anti-Semitism and bureaucracy impede their, the actual exodus to Israel. But the question, the real question at all of this is like, now we're in Palestine the British have made contradictory promises to the Arabs and to the Jews and are trying to solve this problem by shuffling paperwork around and by, you know, by like saying, well, the treaty says this and we can't, you know, we can't, sorry, this one has to go here and that one. And meanwhile, you know, the situation spiraling out of their control, but we don't see any of that. We kind of hear it because everybody's, you know, Paul Newman is staring off into the, into the middle distance, giving a, uh, I have a dream speech every uh, 15 minutes. In this Valley of Jazreel, we, we dwell together as friends. This movie comes to us two years before Lawrence of Arabia, and it is in that same weird tradition of just casting a Western white actor and, you know, putting boot polish in their beard to make them seem like an Arab. Only a weird tradition if you were born after 1980. (laughs) Prior to 1980, standard form. Yeah. If you look in the background, you see a supporting cast of very, you know, very dark people, yet none, like we never get, and and particularly the women, we never get a woman who steps forward into the light that has, that basically has curly hair, you know, like, yeah, uh, we do get some dark, uh, like complexioned dudes, but like Salminio is Sicilian. You know what it is? I <laughs> bet you they just didn't have any Jews in Hollywood at this point that they could have used mm. <laughs> as like lead actors. That must be it. The the background actors must all just be Israelis that they cast, right? Like yeah. that. This is all shot on location, so they went to the kibbutz and they said, "Everybody, line up." But is that like is that like a self-conscious choice to make it more palatable to a an American audience that may have some misgivings about the Jews or or what? Choosing to have the young girl that is kind of the stand-in for uh like a Holocaust survivor who has a hopeful outlook on life and who gradually um her her character arc is that she gradually realizes that that Israel, the Zionist cause, are her place and where she belongs. She doesn't want to escape to America. These are her people. You know, she like undergoes an identity journey until she becomes the martyr of the movie. And the choice of her being Danish, you know, Jewish, but Danish, rather than looking like Sarah Silverman, it had to have been a choice. And there are just so many ways that that you could have had a dark, curly-haired girl in that role. She was a non-professional actor, like plucked from obscurity from Otto Preminger, right? Like, wasn't that her story? But casting her then, like, requires that you ask and answer all these questions. And we have that little moment where Eva Marie Saint says, oh... You know, so your father was Jewish when she kind of looks at her in the camp and she's so blonde and she's like, who, how are, why are you here? And, and she says, <laughs> oh yes. And my mother too. And we get that little bit of that little moment where our expectations, Kitty kind of is our stand in for 
the, our surprise, like don't think that we all look a certain way. But at the same time, if you're going to have one girl as your tent pole Israeli, you know, to choose to have her be uh, from from a a minority of like Jewish Danes. It's like having a Japanese girl and say like, well, you know, there are Jews in Japan. She was in another Otto Preminger movie that's on our list in harm's way starring John Wayne and Kirk Douglas. Yeah. But I think that you're right, John, like the, there's so much table setting, understanding what, what overcommitments the British empire had made to people in this region uh, that you can get through watching Lawrence of Arabia that this movie kind of elides like you you just have to take for granted that this is a very complicated geopolitical uh, puzzle that needs to be solved by the United Nations and 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 it's amazing how much that UN vote is referred back to over the course of the film it's like it's this momentous off-camera thing that we never see we're never in geneva in the movie we don't ever hear anybody's opinion about it that isn't like on screen you know like that vote just is a sort of damocles that's hanging over the action and their their goal is to elicit the sympathy of the world basically i I think there's so much revisionism about this this moment right that we the world now tends to think of Israel as a kind of American, you know, or it couldn't survive without American help, American arms and American aid. And yet in the early days and really, you know, all the way through the seventies, you know, Israel was really on its own and didn't have any big patrons. The guns that they managed to put together to actually fight that, war in 1948 they got from czechoslovakia um and they got it in in defiance of an arms embargo that that scene where they're listening to the united nations vote on partition and it comes down to like what paraguay thinks um (laughs) and what you know what 1948 paraguay thinks there are a lot of nations voting in that or referendum that are like what in 1948 what the hell is going on even in uruguay and yet that's where the future of the middle east and ultimately the future of the world because this hot spot continues to be the flare-up point that would have been such an interesting third part to this film to remove the second part keep the boat, keep the exodus in the beginning, move Act 3 to Act 2, and then see in Act 3 a country get its feet under itself. But the idea that the film ends with what no one agrees on is is like, it's a really nice sentiment of these two people being buried together and eulogized in the way that Paul Newman does. But like, did anyone feel that at the end of this film? At this moment in time? Like, in 1960, as in now, it felt hollow to me. It felt it felt manipulative and untrue. Taha is the only um, the only Arab we ever know by name, and his love for Ari Ben Kanan is one that we're told about over and over. We grew up together. We love each other. You know, yeah. he's like a brother to me. But we never. We s- used to be roommates in college, <laughs> right? But we never see it, really. We just see them together a couple of times, and they don't seem to be too in love with each other. 
the part that affected me so much more than the funeral was the moment where Taha was like, look, man, we've been brothers forever, but like, it's, it has to be over for us. We're, we're not going to be friends anymore. I'm going to leave the room and I'm never going to see you again. Well, and that's the story, right? That's the story of 1948. Yeah. The whole folly, I think, of a lot of the moderate Zionists was that they believed they could create a Jewish state and that the Arabs and the current residents of Palestine could continue to live on their land and continue to be now effectively a non-voting minority in the new state of Israel. And, uh, and so many, um, so many of that, that first generation believed that not all of them, right. But David Ben Gurion believed it. And it was, you know, Begin that didn't. It was incredible to experience the, that moment in this film and be like, God, they really thought that, didn't they? Like, why isn't everyone celebrating with us? This is weird. Like that, that whole tonal shift. Like no person in any leadership position on the on the Arab side ever for a minute agreed with the idea that this was going to be a pluralistic state where they were they went from being the majority to the minority in the space of an afternoon. Do you think that that's because of the history of getting fucked over by various like colonial powers in the region? Like, I mean, they'd been under the boot of the British and then before that, the Ottomans, and they never really had any political agency in that region, right? Well, but there wasn't a, I mean, this is where we're going to get into a place where a lot of people are going to write us letters. I mean, because what I'm wondering about is like, did the Jews coming from Western Europe having seen like the, like all of the extremes of Western nominally democratic governments like came with like a different concept of like how you might go about setting up a state than people who had been living in Palestine the entire time. Like all of their lived experience was based on being ruled from afar by imperial powers, right? Well, the thing is, like the British colonial period um, lasted for 30 years here, but the Ottomans ruled this region for 400 plus years. And during the Ottoman period, there was it was all part of the ottoman empire there was no distinction really between any you know region uh, or the people that lived in what we think of as palestine or jordan or lebanon or you know like i think as it veered into syria or into iraq you started to get a more sort of nationalist identities in those places but in general, it was a it was a varied Arab population, you know, a lot of nomadism, and they were all ruled by by Constantinople. Yeah, but you might consider yourself a member of your tribe, like as the top line in your concept of your identity first, right? Yeah. Well, first, second, and third. This is true of the Jews that were living in Palestine too. The idea that everyone in the world is a born nationalist and that they stand on their plot of ground and put up a flag and say, my primary allegiance is to my nation. It's a real 20th century overlay. It's widely understood that most of the people in the region didn't have a set. There was no Palestinian state or aspiration for there to be a Palestinian state. 
I mean, that's one of the things that they cover in Lawrence of Arabia, right? Is that he's like trying to gin up this sense of Arab nationalism so that they can make the Arabs a thing that the Ottomans have to deal with instead of just a part of the Ottoman Empire, right? Well, yeah. And I think Ben-Gurion actually fought for, during World War One. he, he put, puts uh, like a Jewish brigade together to fight for the Ottomans against the British and then sort of switched sides halfway through from the Arab perspective, there wasn't a clear recognition of what was happening until they perceived the threat of the sort of Zionist intentions, you know, which was a real gradual, like the first, the first Zionists to appear arrived and like bought their farms for a long, long time. The Jewish plan was to just buy property there. It wasn't to, form a state and fight wars. It was just like, let's all move to Palestine and buy farms. And when there's enough of us there, we'll have a community. And when there's enough of a community, we'll have, we'll put together like a, like a government and then eventually a state. It feels like Taha would have been the perfect character to give voice to all of that context. And I think that's like what I was aching for during this film is like Taha to be like, I've lived here forever and I've seen it change in these ways. And what's happening now is pretty scary. And I'm going to tell you why. And it's also going to be the reason why I can't be friends with you, R.A. Ben Cannon. And <laughs> I, I really feel like his utility as a character was underused. I want to know that stuff. And it sucks that the conversation's more interesting than the movie to me. To have one British character who was sitting at a desk and and at various times talking to Arab leaders and Jewish leaders and trying to, in their perfunctory way, like appease and explain and adjudicate this growing dispute where it's like, well, wait a minute, we were all living here just fine, but now, now you want to do this and now, now where are you going? And to just see one guy over his head, increasingly over his head, would have been a great proxy for us because we spend all that time with the Israelis and Paul Newman is such a, uh, he never smiles in this movie, right? I'll be here on the terrace from seven o'clock on. He's a super like pinched character in this movie, not a sympathetic one. We only love him because he's beautiful and he's righteous. I can't believe how they kept Paul Newman's character totally clean and quaffed throughout like he gets up out of the water after swimming off of that boat his hair is perfectly done and his <laughs> hair never gets out of place for the entire film he's on a boat full of people on hunger strike he's not suffering his his uniform is clean he gets to to wear the suit on that date with kitty like i think we talk about this in other films like like how much we admire a willingness for an actor to to drop their vanity a little bit and to and to get down in it and i and that was one of the elements of the film like i i want to i want to feel more trauma from a traumatic story and if paul newman's not willing to go through that with me and for me it's going to be hard for me to get there with a film that's why sol minio got nominated for a oscar for this role what a fucked up job interview that was though <laughs> that's like tell me about a time you've been traumatized as, as, with one of those open-ended interview yeah, questions yeah. and then like 
Oh, brutal. What's your weakest quality as yeah. a manager? <laughs> yeah. Repeatedly, Otto Preminger and Paul Newman hated each other's guts and had an extremely conflicted relationship on this film set. And like, did you read the dummy story? Yeah, like it's like a onset prank where Paul Newman was like pissed off at Preminger about something and they had a scene on a balcony where he finished shooting the scene and threw this dummy off and made Otto Preminger think that he'd like slipped and fallen off of, <laughs> off of the building and Otto Preminger had like a heart attack and and like had to be like carried off set. That sounds fun. <laughs> We know how terrible dummies were in this era of Hollywood. Like, I, I kind of admire Paul Newman's ingenuity to make a, a realistic looking dummy. Yeah. Well, I wonder, like, which side the cleanness of Paul Newman came from, though. Like, was it Paul Newman's vanity or was it something about yeah. the way Otto Preminger saw that character? Because I was reading about the novel. There's a, a really amazing quote from Leon Uris in the New York Post uh, on the on the Wikipedia article about the novel. Uh, I'm going to read the whole thing. He says, there is a whole school of American Jewish writers who spend their time damning their fathers, hating their mothers, wringing their hands and wondering why they were born. This isn't art or literature. It's psychiatry. These writers are professional apologists. Every year you find one of their works on the bestseller list. Their work is obnoxious and makes me sick to my stomach. I wrote Exodus because I was just sick of apologizing or feeling that it was necessary to apologize. Yeah. Boom. Wow. And I wonder if that's hot. What Otto Preminger is trying to do with this. I mean, like, this is a very unapologetic movie. It does not start the way I start every friendly fire, which is by apologizing for having an opinion, you know, like it very forcefully makes its case. He also like hired Dalton Trumbo to write the screenplay, despite the fact that Dalton Trumbo was on the Hollywood blacklist. It's like a, this movie is a fuck you to anyone that disagrees with its stated opinion. And there are, there are aspects of the movie where that is clear. You know, it, it has a side, right? It, in fact, it only shows one side. But there are other long, sweeping portions of the movie where it just feels like a propaganda film. You know, every time somebody says, everyone gather around, they all do and they're all quiet and listen as someone gives them like a really inspiring speech. And that that felt like it veered away from, well, just veered away from the story in order to be a like a sentimental long advertisement for Israel. Do you think that that's partly because of like when in history this movie came out? I mean, like I'm just trying to like think about the American audience for this film, maybe, you know, having a vague sense of what the Holocaust meant to the refugees at the beginning of the film. Like how shocking was Dov's Sonder Commando story to someone like that? Yeah. Well, much more shocking the sodomy aspect of it, I think. Right. But I do think that this movie played a huge role in making an American audience aware of Israel and making Israel the the uh, protagonist. I mean, Israel's only, at this point, 12 years old. Yeah. As, like pre-Six Day War. 
that this came out. Mm-hmm. There's an idea out of the world of, of Israel that is this country that is constantly besieged by its neighbors that maybe like hadn't been like fully articulated yet at this point. The book and then the movie followed on the heels of the Suez crisis. And the Suez crisis after 1948, when the Israeli Defense Force just basically handed their asses to every other nation in the region. I mean, you can see how that would have happened with all that stick fighting practice you see in this movie. (laughs) Very formidable military on the way, I think. Right. One gun for every 15 people. No, I think the I think the foundation myth of of Israel is that not myth, but the story is that the Arabs outnumbered them, had more weaponry, more everything. And on a shoestring, basically with with sticks and a bunch of trucks that didn't have anybody in them, but with this incredible sense of purpose, they defeated overwhelming odds because the Arabs didn't have at the time of much of a collective sense that they were working as a unit. But in, in 56, the Suez crisis was a situation where Israel invaded uh, Egypt when Egypt nationalized the Suez Canal and they invaded Egypt kind of, you know, as a the tip of the spear for this British plan to recapture the canal. And it was a kind of a disaster and it wasn't a disaster militarily, like a diplomatic disaster. And the USA and the Soviets both agreed, you know, they they both turned on the Israelis and the British and it was a huge humiliation for everybody and they had no international support and they had to back out. And so I think this movie was made in the context of this post Suez sense that the Israelis had overstepped their bounds. They were part of this fucked up conspiracy Their reputation wasn't that good at this moment. No, no trouble at all. But what is this? This is right before the Cuban Missile Crisis, Bay of Pigs. Exciting time to be alive. Right? There's like a lot of shit going on geopolitically. So this movie, even though we never hear about Russians, that's not part of the story of the movie. It's part of the story of the time the movie was made. And there may be being some effort by the filmmakers to rehabilitate the image of Israel in making this film. If that's like the first thing everybody remembers about Israel, oh, they were involved in that weird Suez crisis thing. And you you put a bunch of American actors at the front uh, (laughs) as a way of saying like, Israel, it's just basically like America. It's got Salminio in it. It's cat on a hot tin roof, except uh, over there. You just replace the cat and the hot tin with a fiddler. <laughs> fiddler on a hot tin roof. It's a hell of a combination. Uh, I've got a goof for you guys from the IMDb goof section. This film repeats a historical error contained in the original novel when Karen tells Dove about King Christian the 10th of Denmark publicly wore a yellow star of David in defiance of a Nazi order that all Danish Jews do so. In fact, this incident never occurred. Danish Jews were never ordered to wear the yellow star. 
See, I knew something smelled funny about that story. That's Rudy. That's the story of Rudy. (laughs) (laughs) That moment between Karen and Dove when she tells him that story and then she's like, well, if you don't get it, then that's what makes you the fucked up person you are, was not sufficient enough to ruin her love for him. She really loved him. And I thought for sure that it would, right? Like she loved him even though he didn't get that story. He, she was 15 when this movie was made and she's playing a 15 year old and she does such a wonderful job of being 15 and never more 15 than in that scene and in the final yeah. scene where he promises to marry her and then he says, go back to the base from now on, you have to do what I say. And she gets a look of absolute, complete satisfaction, just like, yes. Finally, I've lost my agency. She's so pleased. It's such a strange change because the f- the first scene we get with them is is her, like, he's completely lost it in that tent. He smashes the milk glass and is ready to, to come a stabbing. Karen diffuses the bomb that is Dove in that scene. It's so weird that she has so much power that she's willing to give up for him. It's weird only in... 2020 in 1948 that would have been exactly the dynamic it's cool and normal in 48 i get you well not cool and normal but like that would have been the dynamic right like i'm yeah you you can't tell me what to do i'm gonna kick your ass but now that i'm your wife it just gave me like a flashback to my wife going through our ketubah with a red pen and crossing out all the parts about her submitting to my will But, you know, in the in the style of the time, one thing we forget about marriages prior to 1990 is that there's always been play acting or um, role playing. It always goes back to stories of your first marriage in 1990. John always does. But, you know, like a little bit of a DS, D slash lowercase s, like shared conspiracy about what the gender roles are going to be. In, in marriages where there, where there was actual equality between people. Surely not. I'm, not. I'm not saying that this is true across the board, but it's, you know, that was a voluntary submission on her part. Not, and, you know, and I'm sure if you want to send me letters about institutionalized patriarchy, you can send them to Ben at. <laughs> no, they'll just your, hurt my feelings. Go fuck yourself at <laughs> MaximumFunkenstein.org. All right, but if you do send them to me, my wife is going to be the one that replies because yeah. she handles all our correspondences. Yeah. Let her let her read them, and then she'll she can put the pen in your hand. She wrote that into your ketuba. Did <laughs> <laughs> your husband have something to say about that? One of the moments in the film that that got me up out of the couch and was like, "What?" Some things I don't feel like are very forgivable in a film that's three and a half hours. And one of them is is like continuity breaks that don't make a lot of sense. And one of them was Ari Ben Kanan meets up with Kitty after a long while. And they have that dinner, that dinner outside. And Ari Ben Kanan's like, babe, I know this menu top to bottom. Let me do the ordering. I'll get us a few more martinis while we're at it. He does that. And then he gets that fake phone call. And then he leaves to go take that meeting. Yeah. The next day in movie time, he still gets that ride from Kitty out to the farm. And we get no resolution to the idea that he just fucking ditched her with the dinner and with the check. (laughs) I spent the next 10 minutes going, oh, anytime now Kitty's going to drop this bomb on 
Ari Ben Kanan about how fucked up it was the night before. Nothing. <laughs> Adam really watches this movie through the lens of his own life. <laughs> I don't care what time period it is. You can't leave a dinner with a woman that you're interested in and expect there to be no consequences. When he was when he took that fake phone call and it was like, you've got to go. And he said, but wait a minute, I've got to go say something to my date. And they're like, now or never. And he leaves like you. You're absolutely right. The movie lit a fuse what that was trying, what that established was that this was an important meeting, so important that he would bail on that. But it also, you couldn't leave that unresolved. And I also spent 10 minutes going, oh, the shit hits the fan. A movie like Goodfellas makes that moment Kitty's realization, like where all of a sudden Kitty's like, oh, this is an important and powerful and dangerous man. And it would have imbued the meeting with his parents with a different type of energy, too. Right. Wake up, Henry. But- I, unlike you, completely <laughs> forgot it as soon as the as soon as they were together again. I was just like, derp, 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 along for the ride. And now that you bring it up, I'm outraged that the movie did not <laughs> use that. You know, and the movie does that several times where it like lays out a thing where it's like, when you come back to this, it's going to make this movie incredible. And then they never come back to it. I want to call attention to one thing. I've been slagging on Paul Newman a lot in this conversation, but at the end of that scene, he's he's hopped off, off the back of that motorcycle, and in one unbroken take, he gets off the motorcycle, climbs up that rock wall to the top, and walks out of frame. One of the things I liked about this movie was were scenes like that, like we're we're not cutting away during some action, and I liked seeing Paul Newman physically climb up a wall when he had to. And and that wasn't the only example where he or other people were called upon to do something like that. I would like to point out, this movie suggests that to live in Israel requires that you routinely scale a 10-foot wall. Yeah. Dov did it all the time. <laughs> over and over. Dov was doing like parkour in the scene where he's like running around the church. Yeah. I don't know about you, Ben, but I don't have a lot of Otto Preminger reps in my movie watching. And like, I really dug what he does with sequences. Like, it always felt like a conversation was starting and then we were moving to two or three places within the room. And then it rested at B with some sort of action in the background. Yeah, his uh, ability to mount a scene is pretty, is pretty great. I felt like this movie really moved. Like I did not find it to be dull or challenging to get through the three and a half hours. Like we sat down and watched three and a half hours of movie. We did not pause. We did not take long breaks. We weren't looking at our phones. It, it like it really had us at my house. And I think that like part of that is is scope and scale. Like we haven't even talked about like the huge jailbreak set piece in which is like a probably a 30 minute set piece that's really fun and and well done and has lots of great little moments like all the guys like using the smuggled in parts to make grenades and shit while they're supposed to be sleeping it was neat <laughs> was to like, see the photographs of the actual jailbreak compared to what we got in the movie it, it was really well done i felt like the sound was terrible there was just a lot of room noise you know, it felt like the dialogue was being captured in the moment, not dubbed, but the mics mm-hmm. seemed really kind of far away and in these echoey rooms where I'm trying to make out dialogue and I'm hearing people pouring water and 
and walking around in leather soled shoes. But there was, but also just like so much of the dialogue went into people's armpits in, in this movie that it became, it was a kind of a stress watch for me. There were a couple of moments where things were dubbed one time uh, really badly where the guy was calling the mezzuin from the, you know, the top of the minaret and he's like, Allah, yeah. but you can see his lips aren't moving or whatever. And you're like, <laughs> he's really shouting that, you know, yeah. he's not that out of focus movie, <laughs> but can you please explain to me what was going on with the sound? And did you guys also notice it? I mean, admittedly, I was watching it on my phone and I also had the, uh, I was in the bathtub and I had the shower going, but it was hard to hear. This movie does not have the same level of restoration care brought to it that for example lawrence of arabia did like the version of lawrence of arabia that we watched for this show was very recently remastered and remastered at great expense and with a ton of care and this movie is you know it's been scanned in hd so it's been digitized fairly recently but there are still scenes where you can see like damage to certain reels like if this movie ever got the criterion treatment or had it, its place in history alongside Lawrence of Arabia as being considered like one of the important films, capital I, capital F, uh, we might have had a, a very different sound experience watching it. But this seems like it's just like analog sound uh, that was as good as they could muster in 1960, but is crappy and like lo-fi by contemporary standards but we watch so many movies from this period where the sound is good there are some things like you know bad lip sync on dubs and and stuff like adding dialogue when somebody wasn't talking or whatever that you still would have noticed but i think that the like straining to hear what people are saying thing may partly be due to a production house that was sent a bunch of reels of analog film and said digitize this in hd and just you know ran it through the system and didn't like try and remaster the audio at all the reason i ask i i didn't want to i didn't want to out myself as not watching this on my phone because it's part of my brand but i had just yeah. two days prior purchased a sonos sound bar for my Ooh. giant 75 foot television and wow. uh, and so I have this soundbar now that makes um, that makes everything seem like it's a hip hop video. And so <laughs> I was like, yeah, I'm never going to have, you know, I'm never going to have that experience again of of watching a classic movie where where I can hear people's sweat, which is different from being able to hear clearly. And then yeah. this just uh, the soundbar just made this uh made the kind of echoey indistinct audio worse so sounds like the good ship exodus ran aground on a sound bar <laughs> <laughs> rob i hope you just leave that i couldn't <laughs> hold it i wanted entire, to hold it so much longer Tired <laughs> pause <laughs> <laughs> But I just keep thinking how scared he must be right now. I wonder, Ben, I mean, you know, we often watch movies and have very different experiences. Yeah. You must have been preloaded in the sense that when you kind of talk, talked about that this movie was next on your list, did you hear from 
from your in-laws a lot of, did you get a lot of pre-funk on it? Most of my in-laws are non-podcast listeners, but there are people in my in my wife's family that do listen to the show. And one compliment I get from time to time is that they really appreciate that we have conversations on this show where we don't agree and that we still have good conversations. Like there's a feeling that disagreements are so intractable now in the world that you can't even have a conversation with somebody that isn't on the same page as you politically. And and I think that is one of the strengths of this show is that I have lots of preconceptions about geopolitics and history that I am forced to test against uh, your and Adam's scrutiny. And, and I think that, you know, that's true for all three of us. And the folks that show up at Seder's and my wife's family are uh, are Zionists, and I, I've never talked to them about this movie in particular. But when you're in their homes, do you ever see like the three VHS <laughs> cassette of of Exodus under their television? The Exodus poster signed by Otto Preminger. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, now you're going to have lots to talk about now that you've seen it, and yeah. Mm-hmm. I've, I've never felt like I could form a really like cogent personal viewpoint on Israel, Palestine. And part of that is that I just, I feel like who in the world is asking for another like non-Jewish Western white guy to have a really strident opinion about that? <laughs> like leave it to the people that live there to have their conversations. I mean, the thing is that, that people not having a very good sense of what's going on here in this region. First of all, the the more you know about it, the less of a good sense you have. But also, that's never stopped anyone from taking a stance on it. And well, and I've read a lot about it, but I yeah, and I think that like it's it's that the more I read about it, the less confident I am in my own ability to like decide what a good solution seems like to me because it's like I was saying before, like if you have different differences of opinion about this issue, like it shuts the conversation down for a lot of people, you know, there, I think have been, you know, just in my lifetime, like pretty awful things done on either side of that issue. And I don't know how to do the moral math of like trying to like balance the ledger because I, I just don't, I, I don't know. So like it may be a defense mechanism, right? Like uh, like I think that maybe like if I stuck to the dictates of my political allegiances, I might show up at, at a Sukkot and have really strident opinions that were very much against the beliefs of my extended family. And that would be hard for me to deal with. You'd show up in your keftia with the... <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> With your Arafat t-shirt on? Your mistake would be asking how your dictates. Oh, come on. (laughs) But you get five minutes in a timeout chair, Adam. (laughs) Really? You were just talking about uh, about how how it doesn't matter how much you know about this conflict. (laughs) And it it made me feel seen. (laughs) Made me feel like a valued member of the show. Um, but I also like, and I, I watched this movie knowing that it was a movie mounted from a, you know, this viewpoint of a Austrian born Jewish American film director and a communist writer. And I, and, and I found the viewpoint of this movie very compelling. And I think that like, 
it's it's pretty clear that they uh, greatly de-emphasized the valid concerns of the of the Arabs in this movie and essentially painted them out of the movie or showed them being like shock troops that were aligned with the Nazis, which is not the most flattering depiction. That was a pretty over the top moment. Yeah. But also like the the problem at the beginning of this movie is like, what the fuck are these people going to do? And I don't know that there was like a way better solution that was not entertained. You know, I just don't know. What about you, John? What do you think? Well, I guess we're going to entering the review portion of our show where we review the state of Israel. <laughs> I even I wouldn't come up with a rating system for that, Ben. It's all yours. <laughs> I yield my time and my rating system. One thing I've always avoided talking about in all of the podcasts I do is Israel. And over time realized that you, the side that you take in this is almost arbitrary just depending on where you heard about it first and where your sympathies lie and what your idea of like land is you know like whether or not war is just and whether or not land like identity is rooted in land or identity is rooted in something else i always wonder like if i call myself a zionist like i feel like that means different things to different people and i think that that that's part of where my like moral cowardice starts is that i don't necessarily know what the word means to everyone that would hear it and therefore don't want to use it for fear of misusing right. it Right. well just in having said that i know that there are a bunch of people that are going to be mad i think the israelis proved themselves over and over militarily they defeated all comers. They fought overwhelming odds. And just in terms of like whatever the whatever the rules of war are, they've, I think, have demonstrated claim to that land just because they took it, you know, if for no other reason, you know, in the same way that you could make a claim to any people having a nation for any nation having a state. There's no reason that Hungary exists where it is, except for the Mygars came in there at a certain point and claimed it. And it happened long enough ago that we don't say we need to get these Mygars out of here and push them back over the Caucasus because they have no right to be here. I've lost friends over <laughs> over my feelings about the Mygars, though, John. So I definitely know what a hot potato this is. No, I mean, that's something I think about all the time. Like, there's not that many pieces of land on earth that don't have some history of somebody taking it from someone else at the point of a gun sword or whatever yeah no nobody's from anywhere ultimately if you if you listen to michael shabon uh the jews should own alaska right <laughs> and that would have been a that would have been a wonderful solution to the whole problem or arizona and new mexico except there were people there already it worked out great for them in that book <laughs> <laughs> and like how deep in history like you bring up the mygars like as a joke because it's like yeah it's long enough ago that nobody gives a shit about that anymore or at least nobody around here and I guess this is such a hot conflict because there's a recency to it and still a lot of like, you know, racialized tension around it. In most cases, most of the wars we watch movies about are either wars where the invading army is there to either pacify or to steal or to, you know, destroy. But very seldom is it 
like an army that's come to take to displace people and move in. But traditionally throughout history, that's a big part of what wars were. Um, the Norman conquest was not just to take candlesticks back to Normandy. The Norman conquest was to conquer and actually push Anglo-Saxons into the channel. And the European conquest of North America was a conquest to take and populate. Well, that one's different, though, because God said we could. God said we could. And also there was no one here. Completely empty country. (laughs) But, you know, we're doing a lot of revisionism now or we're looking back at, for instance, the European conquest of North America. And we have a lot to say about it now. But that's kind of as far back as anybody's willing to go. Right. I mean, there's the colonial period globally is what we're examining now. But nobody wants to go back to twelve hundred So it's just interesting that we are willing to go back to the 18th century, but not the 15th century. It's, you know, it's very much arbitrary. Like nobody's arguing that the Italians actually have a right to the land in Israel because it used to be part of the Roman Empire and that it was unjustly taken away from them when Rome fell. And I guess Israel is the most recent example And I think maybe one of the only examples of a people that were stateless for 2000 years. And crucially, somebody tried to get rid of all of them right before this. Right. And the and the formation of the state and the kind of belligerence behind it and the belligerence in Israel even now, uh, maybe even especially now. I mean, Israel is what, 70 years old? None of this is set in stone. There's no guarantees, right? My dad's older than Israel. Yeah, right. (laughs) That's the thing that sucks is that you really like don't find people who are capable of changing their minds on this issue. Because if if you're on the side of I'm I'm pro-Palestine, anti-Israel, Israel Israel is an apartheid state and rotten to its core, you know, and that's and that's where my beliefs are. You can't like rehabilitate your own image of that. It's possible to be pro-Israel and not pro the politics of Israel necessarily like I I think that especially in in the US like if you're not avowedly pro-Israel you can be accused of being anti-Israel if you're like I think Israel has a right to exist but don't agree with X Y or Z you can have the anti-Semite insult thrown at you pretty easily that whole thing of like my blood runs in the rocky soil of my father's olive orchard is just such a load of fucking mazurka playing bullshit in my estimation. Well, that's also the like where where like the religious import of Jerusalem, Israel comes in and that's where all of the like rationality goes out the window at that point, you know. Well, and Jerusalem should be an international city, right? Jerusalem should be a freaking space station. Almost like the Vatican where it's like sort of its own thing yeah. inside of another thing. Yeah, a city state that's open to the people of, of all the world. It should not be ruled by any one group and it should have and there should be a circle around it 50 miles wide and it should be unique in the world, right? Because it's the it's the temple of the three Abrahamic faiths. We should protect the place that gave us the three Abrahamic faiths, the <laughs> Three forces for good in the world. (laughs) Yeah, we should build a dome over it. (laughs) Another dome over the dome that's over the dome. Wow. (laughs) 
Triple Dome. Well, I really wish someone would uh, break me out of this conversational prison I've been in for the last 25 minutes. I'm so sorry. I'm looking around at all the, the contraband that's been sent to me. I'm checking my cakes to see if anything is inside. <laughs> what about you, Adam? What about you? What's your, what's your take? What's your hot take? Where do you fall? I'm, uh, I'm uninterested and untrusting of all religions equally. That's what I'll say. Yeah. Strong take. I read that uh, that Preminger thought the book was poorly written, but about an interesting subject matter. And uh, the book has been called Anti-British. But I did also read that the book featured a scene where British warships rammed the Exodus boat. Mm-hmm. Thought that would have been interesting in a three and a half hour movie. This is what gets to the heart of what I feel like I'm here to do. You guys did that thing that you just did, but I think we have... You mean got canceled? Right. <laughs> What's great about the review portion of this episode is that no one's going to stick around to hear it. I think, I mean, I know we've talked about films with depictions of Israel and Palestine and Turkey and Armenia and uh, a host of others, and I did and do my best not to involve myself with the specifics of those conflicts. I think first, because I'm not educated enough about them, and mostly because I'm more interested in how a film handles those things. Like, I, in a weird way, like, that is a film's job in a subject like this. Can you teach me enough about the subject matter to where I can form an argument and hang in a conversation? I don't think this one does that particularly well. I I read a lot of reviews of this film, and epic was a word thrown around a lot. But I think while the film is epic in length, I don't think the story matches up with it. So I think it has elements that were of great interest to me. I think the boat and the prison break were exciting parts of the story that I will think of when I think of this movie. And as far as a rating system goes, there is a scene where they've gotten Dav arrested, which is a scene we are deprived of. Like, we're told, you know, we're just going to leave it up to Dav, whether or not he wants to turn himself in to be the inside guy to blow up the walls from the inside. That's I'm not going to order him, someone says. It's going to be up to Dav. We never see that. We see Dav being sent to prison and inside the assembled prisoners are given the tools they need with which to break out these tools are contained in all manner of things we've got are those cows what what are the what are the big meats carried in on shoulders into this prison they have to be goats right yeah they look so big though yeah, they seem they seem too small to be cows big goats small cows they're smuggled in via animal parts they're smuggled in, you know, there's a scene outside the prison where the people are, are waiting to have their visits and they're getting their sausages cut up and their cakes. All of their gifts are just being slashed by these prison guards. It sucks. All these cakes getting ruined, but the cake filled with explosive is what we see later specifically. I think non-specifically we see envelopes being pulled from animal parts 
and stuff, but it's inside the cake where we see the makings of an explosive device. And I think the uh, the contraband cake is going to be the review system for Exodus. One to five of those will be how we determine how we feel about it. I think getting back to the idea of of like the truth of a story versus its its film depiction, like one of the things that Exodus doesn't really do to my satisfaction is really take a side. I think that works fine for war movie podcasts, but maybe less so for the war movies. And I was shocked at how down the middle this thing played out up to the point where we finally get a Nazi leader that we can all agree to hate. And like, I feel like we started writing the story at the gravesite. I know all of these incidents are, are based on reality, but I feel like in a screenwriting perspective, we start at the gravesite and work backwards. And I think that's a very unsatisfying way to sketch out a story. There is a genre for films that don't take sides and that play the stories from the middle, and those are called documentaries. And I wish Otto Preminger chose that as his project instead of this, because I feel like when you're a filmmaker, it's your duty to, especially when you have a stated opinion about a source material the way he did, he thought the book kind of sucked, and he thought the story was more interesting. Well, make something better, Otto Preminger, and don't leave out cool stuff like boat ramming. Yeah. I felt exhausted by the end of this movie and not in a way I like to be after movies that I love. It feels like uh, an achievement in technical storytelling. And there are a lot of technical things that I like about this film. But it is uh, it is an exercise in that rather than one that is evocative in the way that I like my films and I know this this film and this story has a special meaning to a lot of people but like the duty of a filmmaker is especially if you don't like your source material make it good and interesting and I was not interested in it so I'm going to give it 2.75 cakes boy I uh, there's a lot I disagree with uh, about what he just said and a lot I agree with but I have a hard time imagining watching this film and feeling like it didn't take a side it felt very pointed to me it felt like it was very much yelling from the rooftops it wants the state of israel to be available to both people like that's that felt like the whole point of burying ta in the same grave as uh, as karen and uh, i i may be in the minority here but i really enjoyed watching this film. I felt like it was interesting and entertaining and I didn't have the experience of, uh, of finding that it dragged or that it was losing my attention. I loved the language in the dialogue. I, th- I thought that the, the dialogue was, pr- was particularly well written and I thought it was really interesting that there wasn't, like aside from the Nazi and the, and the Arab stormtroops, there wasn't a big bad like this movie does not posit a a world in which all problems come from mustache twirling evil people that are avowedly evil like it says that there are evil people in the world but a lot of the evil in the world comes from bullshit like lightly anti-semitic british officers trying to find a bureaucratic solution for a problem that doesn't really have a bureaucratic solution and 
the heroes in this movie are taking matters into their own hands and cutting through that red tape and making it their business to found a state. And I, I felt like I got a lot out of watching this one. And um, when we roll the dice and it lands on a three and a half hour movie, I think we all <laughs> have a lot of misgivings about you know, continuing to have a podcast when that happens. It's like, fuck, really? (laughs) But uh, I was totally pleasantly surprised by this one, and I'm going to give it four cakes. There are quite a few movies in this movie. We talk about this a lot. Sometimes you can have a a three-and-a-half-hour long movie like Lawrence of Arabia, and there aren't a lot of movies in it. It's just one movie. And then there are other movies, sometimes really short movies, that still have a lot of different movies in them. And this one does that first act where Paul Newman is trying to, on behalf of the Haganah, which is kind of the, the, the movie sets up the Haganah as the moderate revolutionary group. That's more politically inclined, but still like aggro. And Paul Newman, you know, takes this group of refugees and uh, and turns them into, you know, a political football. And we're pitted then Haganah against the British occupation and sort of the, the like post-war British global colonial project spiraling out of their control. That's all really interesting. And really, there's a lot of history there and a great opportunity to tell a tell this sweeping story. Um, You know, at this same moment, on the other side of the world, India and Pakistan are also partitioning, also representing, in that case, a place where Britain has been a colonial power for centuries, also, you know, kind of creating two, two new countries in a place that had been basically a shared space for thousands of years and in the case of india and pakistan in 19 in this same you know within a year of the events of this film like 15 million refugees were produced in that partition seven million muslims walked from what was it, what, what were their homes in India to the new state of Pakistan and 7 million Hindus moved, walked basically on the same roads on opposite sides of the same roads. And like over a million people died just in the transfer. So the, you know, the events here are not, a, not only not unprecedented, but this was happening globally. I mean, the expulsion of Germans from all of Eastern Europe, Germans in some cases who had lived there for generations at the end of World War II, that's a story that never gets told, that the German expulsion of all these like people that were living in Bulgaria for, for 200 years. And it's like, no more Germans. I'm sorry. If you're a German, you're back, you're back in Germany. Fuck you guys. I know that I'm going to get letters from people being an apologist for Bulgarian Germans. I think you know the email address. But then this movie turns into basically a soap opera between the Haganah and the Irgun. And basically what they are are two different philosophies of how to resist the British. The Haganah 
want to take a diplomatic route and the Irgun have decided that terrorism is the only way. And we, we pivot to this story of two brothers estranged one who believes in car bombs and one who believes in the kibbutzim and the acoustic guitar and, and big mustaches. And then we spend the rest of the movie on the kibbutz, both kind of supposed to luxuriate in its equanimity and also like get ready to fight for its existence. And it just wanders. The movie just wanders off into the desert. So I, I felt as somebody that really cares about this issue and this story, and I don't mean to make myself sound unsympathetic to the Palestinians. Like I say, I've chosen a side and it's not that I don't have tremendous sympathy for the cause of the other. I don't think there's, there are very many people in this world who could look at either side and say, unless you have, unless you're completely indoctrinated, look at either side of this conflict and say the other side doesn't have almost exactly an equally good case. It's just that if, you know, if it's a 50, 50 split on which way you're going to go, you have to just decide that it's 49, 51, you know, just looking at the partition of India and realizing that that 15 million people made that transit and over a million died and then compare it to this situation in Palestine and you're talking about 700,000 Palestinian Arabs were displaced and an equal number. This is the other side of this story that you don't hear very often. After the formation of Israel in 1948, the Jews that lived throughout the Arab world were largely expelled from Morocco and Iraq and Iran and Syria some, in some cases, communities of Jews that had been living there for thousands of centuries, at least, were expelled from those countries because suddenly you were not, you know, it, there was so much uh, anger in the Arab world about this, that although 700,000 Palestinians were expelled from Palestine, at least 700,000 Jews were expelled from other places and went to the new state of Israel because they weren't welcome in the rest of the Arab world. So a very similar partition story to Pakistan and India. It's just Pakistan and India was an exponentially larger number of people. Are there any other global controversies you want to include in, in the conversation? I mean, I don't want to leave any of them unreferenced. Well, I was just about to get to the trail of tears. (laughs) (laughs) The native American population of Georgia in 1805 no i'm not gonna go there i'm gonna go i'm gonna you know it's the it is i can't think of another instance where i am gonna sidle up next to adam Mm. i really feel like there's so much in this movie that's great there's so much that this is an example of a movie that i think everyone should watch but cognizant of its flaws so two slices of bomb laden cake and then Three quarters of a slice that I'm going to try and get away with saying I didn't have a third slice. Like, no, I just, I cut off a little bit over here. I just evened it up. 
You're really playing with fire when you when you stick bomb making materials into a cake and then that cake is cut by a guard. What are the chances? I was just thinking about baking a cake that has (laughs) gunpowder hidden in it. (laughs) I like the strategy of putting it into the heel part. Like if you can if you can cozy the material as close to the heel as possible, I think most guards aren't going to cut through the heel. Oh, yeah. I thought I thought that in the we saw the guard cut the sausage, but I think yeah, that yeah, that yeah. cake came pre-sliced. I think that the people that made mm. the cake, it's sliced bread basically, uh. and so the guard looks at it and it's like, you know, if some if if somebody's bringing bread through and you're a guard, you don't want to manhandle the bread too much. You want to show some respect. I liked seeing that sausage. Somebody somebody went and went to Zabar's and got a little present for the prisoners. You know, send a salami to your boy in the army. <laughs> <laughs> oh, we got to pick a guy before the show's over. Ben, who's your guy? My guy's an early in the film character, Dr. Odenheim. He's the, uh, I think he was like the chief medical officer of the Vienna School of Medicine who winds up on the boat. <laughs> he has the epiphany that maybe children shouldn't be a part of a hunger strike. Cool, Doc. <laughs> I think we've all learned a valuable lesson here. <laughs> I love that guy. I love that uh, I love that he's just like, hey, uh, why don't we put some bathrooms and stuff on here? What do you think? I like that idea. He, he, he would have been your, your greatest advocate had you been oh, wow. a war refugee on the Exodus, Adam. He would have been a hero to me. Yeah, and to everyone around you. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. My guy also comes from the boat. Uh, we get to know a few side characters during these scenes. Uh, and my guy, Lakovich, was introduced, I think he's almost in the first shot in the film. He's queued up. Uh, he's one of the guys playing chess and he wants, he would rather trade his shower time with someone else than quit the chess match he's in. <laughs> and uh, I have at times been so involved in a game that I haven't wanted to quit for any reason. So I, I feel that lack of itch. It's, it's going to make you my guy. I feel like that chess game is going to get worse and worse as they get more and more malnourished, right? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Yeah, going to be making some bad moves. Playing chess takes a lot of energy. You burn up those uh, the those bomb breads pretty fast. Who's your guy, John? My guy also is from the the early part of the movie, and I have to I have to think that because the three of us all have guys from the early part of the movie, that that was at, at a time when the movie was promising to be a different movie. But <laughs> when Paul Newman, I didn't watch anything after the boat stuff. What happened after that? Uh, early on in the movie, when Paul Newman puts on his British army officer's outfit and is arranging to uh, to procure a convoy to rescue all of the the refugees, and he goes into the logistics office and sits down at the desk of some junior officer and hands him a piece of paper with some forged signatures on it, demanding 14 lorries. The guy gets on the phone. He's like, I got to call my superior. And Paul Newman, super chill in this moment. Sure, call him, you know. Picks up the phone, this beautiful black 1940s telephone. And he rings up his superior. And for whatever reason, Preminger decides to make the voice on the other end audible. 
Now, what any other filmmaker would have done in this moment is we would have watched Paul Newman while the, the guy on the phone went, and the officer sitting at the desk did a kind of Bob Newhart and was like, oh, yes, sir. Okay. Well, yes, sir. But instead, we hear the captain. What? What does he want? Oh, well, you know what? Does he have the piece of paper? Well, is it signed? Well, did he use a pencil or a pen? Well, then, you know, if it's signed and he's got a piece of paper, well, then give it to him. Why are you calling me? You know, like this, like inane vaudeville dialogue of a, of a guy who's super mad. When he picks up the phone, he's like, what? You know, he's like super, he's like a caricature of a super angry British officer. And we, when we sit, it's why this movie's three and a half hours long. We sit through the entire conversation. And instead of focusing on Paul Newman's cool, instead of letting that, that actor have his, have his Bob Newhart moment, we're all sitting there trying to make out this, what this guy is saying. And in the end, it's, it's just like three minutes of our time as movie watchers. And the whole time I was like, Oh, that's my guy. My, my guy, (laughs) I hate that guy. And I hate that that guy is in this movie. I hate that they hired a guy to do that. I hate that they put a mic on that, but that guy for sure. In the, in the director's cut, there's actually a scene with that guy on the other side, and he's just lost a game of chess to Lakovich. <laughs> it's a split screen, he's right? Like, Where it splits over, and we're like, <laughs> does he have the piece of paper? Well, is it signed? Well, God damn it, man. John, you want to roll that bone? Well, normally, under, under our regular uh, circumstances, we, have, uh, we record this show in the morning. Uh, usually I show up having only just awakened <laughs> and, uh, and by this time in the, uh, in the, this show, I have, um, I've consumed my coffee and I have an empty coffee mug to roll the die. But today we had some technical problems earlier. Now we're recording the show at night Yeah, and I don't have a coffee cup because huh. I'm not drinking coffee at this hour. What the heck? What are we going to do? Well, what did happen today was I got a, uh, I got an envelope in the mail because I'd ordered on eBay some Star Wars figurines for my <laughs> daughter cool. who loves Star Wars. And the Star Wars figurines came in a priority mail envelope. Now, I have to say that the figurines themselves are Clone Wars-based figurines, hmm. not... Not uh, original eps because she is uh, she's very into Clone Wars. So we've got all the little Clone Wars. We got like young Anakin here. Uh, the person that sent these, though, did not turn their arms around right. So their arms all look screwed up anyway. So I don't have the coffee cup, but I do have this plastic bag. <laughs> I'm going to roll the dice inside the plastic bag. Are you ready? Wow. And, and what's what's even more messed up is it seems like the person that sent these sprayed the inside of the bag with Febreze mm. just to make the like figurines that. like smell fresh or mm. something. There's also <laughs> like Lando Calrissian. Covering up weird. that they'd lived in a smoker's household. I don't know. 
They don't smell like smoke, but they do smell like Febreze. There's two Dark Vaders, which seems weird. And then there's that guy from the Trade Federation. Who cares about these? But she will. She'll love them. Okay, anyway, here we go. In the bag. Ready? Here we go. In the bag. <laughs> I don't know why, but my mouth is watering. <laughs> <laughs> Ninety-four. Ninety-four. Big ninety-four is a two thousand eleven film set in World War Two, directed by Adrian Vittoria. It's called Age of Heroes. Age of Heroes. Hmm. Uh, interesting. This is maybe going to be another kind of espionage-based. World War II film, because uh, according to IMDb, this is the true story of the formation of Ian Fleming's 30 Commando Unit, a precursor mm. for the elite forces in the UK. What do you know about that, Paul? And it's got Sean Bean. I do like a Sean Bean. I do not like this title, though. It sounds like a video game. It does kind of sound like a video game. I had I have never heard of this movie before. It sounds like the name of an iPhone game that you, you see a weird commercial for late at night. Like yeah, a 10-second yeah. commercial that says, download Age of Heroes. And it looks like fucking amazing, but then you download the game and it's like almost entirely unlike what you saw in the commercial. Yeah, and then you need to buy a bunch of shit. It's not free. It says it's it, free. Yeah. Hey, this has James Darcy playing Fleming. Remember James Darcy from Master and Commander? He was like the, the lieutenant oh, yeah. who gets made captain at the end. He's wonderful. I like that guy. Cool. That will be next week on Friendly Fire, but we're going to leave it with Rob's, 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 Rob's from here on. So for Adam Pranica and John Roderick, I've been Ben Harrison. To the victor, go the spoiler alerts. Listen to me. Friendly Fire is a Maximum Fun podcast hosted by Adam Pranica, Ben Harrison, and John Roderick. The show is produced and edited by me, Rob Schulte. Our theme music is War by Edwin Starr, courtesy of Stone Agate Music. And our podcast art is by Nick Dittmer. If you need more Friendly Fire, take a look back at our episode covering Beasts of No Nation, which we released this time last year. It's a film that follows a child soldier fighting in the civil war of an unnamed African country. If you like supporting our show, head to MaximumFun.org join, and for as little as $5 a month, not only will you receive our bonus pork chop feed, you'll also get all of the bonus content from Maximum Fun. And don't forget, you can now follow us on Twitter and Instagram under the handles FriendlyFireRSS. Thanks for listening. We'll see you next week with another episode of Friendly Fire. Well, I hope that Rob's is able to keep us from getting completely canceled. Maximumfun.org. Comedy and culture. Artist owned. Audience supported.